If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Romans chapter 11. Um, we are, we've spent the last two weeks in chapters 9 through 11 and kind of working through those three chapters. And even though we, we acknowledged the last four verses of chapter 11, we need to spend more time on it. Um, some of you are going to laugh when I say this. And it is not a joke, but these are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, They are. If you see, all the, I was looking at some of my different Bibles, and all of them have this section outlined and underlined, and you can tell I've spent time in these these verses. So I'm excited to talk about them with you. But I want to start with this concept of, that when <clears throat> there is a relationship that exists between these two things, um, one of them is right thinking about God, which I will call um, orthodoxy. It's kind of a fancy term for right thinking about God. And then there's a relationship between that word and another word called orthopraxy, which is right living for God. Or, nope, orthopraxy. These two words are, um, are linked together. They, they, they work inter, intertwined with each other. You need both. You need to have right understanding about God in order to live rightly for Him. And, and that's something that we've talked about before. But the verses that we're going to look at today add, I think, a new element that, that as I began to start thinking about, I realized it is just as important. It actually, in, in a lot of ways, solidifies um, these two things, and it's this word. Um, I'm going to put doxology. Doxology is, is another word, a word that means hymn of praise. And by this, I mean having a, 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 a way in which to express your love for God, a, a song on your heart, so to speak. And the Bible's full of it. There, there's actually, you can, I, I would encourage you at some point, just do a study on the terms new song. It's really fascinating. Every time the Bible says new song, read what it's talking about. And it's this concept that, that, that at any point in our life, when, when God does something in our life, that new songs are birthed from it. And it's pretty interesting. But doxology, this idea of hymn of praise, is a, like a written or an oral expression of the glory of God, a heartfelt praise of who God is, a poetic confession um, of who you believe He is. And I believe we need both. I believe, I believe we can, um, if we just have this without, and this without this, then we just kind of live a life without this rich relationship with God, this, this heartfelt, this deep sense of that knowing that God loves you and, and um, that He's poured out His grace upon you. And that, those are very real things. And if we don't have doxology, I think we miss those things. But uh, I also think that if you, have, if you just have doxology, and not the other two things. If you just have, if you're just trying to sing songs to God, it's like, 
you're, you're singing songs, singing worship songs to a God you don't know about a life in Him that you don't have any intention to live. Also, if you have just two of these, okay, if you have orthodoxy and doxology, without this one, you, we become fat Christians who just consume and consume and consume and never really exercise our faith. And I also think if we, have, we think we can just have these two, I'm just going to be passionate and I'm going to live right without really knowing God. It's, it's, just, it's just stirring up emotions in order to live a moral life. And, I, and so it doesn't work. I think we need all three. We need to know who God is, to think rightly about Him. And that's what Romans so far has done for us. Romans 1 through 11 has been Paul's very intentional treaty about who God is and what He's done and who we are and how we should live. Um, and so he's talked a lot about theology and, and, and orthodoxy, right thinking about God. And he's getting ready to enter into 12 through 16. How do we live this out? How do we live in light of this? How do we live in community as, as transformed people? Um, how do we be the church in, in the world? And so that's where he's heading into. But right in the middle of this is this beautiful little link. And I don't think Paul's trying to teach us necessarily. I think Paul just can't help but bust out into song here. And I think that's what's happening in these verses. So, turn to, so look at those verses, starting in verse 33. It, it starts with the word O. Oh. So, that, that's a key, that something's changed here. If you kind of read through 9, 10, 11, and, and really it's similar to the rest of the, the, the book. It, there's, it's log, logical progression. Paul is making an argument and proving his point and explaining things. And then he just says, oh, and, and you can almost see it. It's almost like God, like Paul is instructing, instructing, and then he just, oh, the depth. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So, he says, I think he's saying three things here. I think he's describing the depth of riches of God. I think he's describing the depth of the, of the wisdom of God, sorry, and then the depth of the knowledge of God. So, in, the reason I think that is because he's already, um, four other times, talk about, he's talked about the riches of God. He's talked about God's riches, specifically, to summarize, riches of His kindness, richness of His glory, and the richness of the way He blesses us in kindness. Those are kind of the, 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 the three different, or four different things that came from it. Um, and so this idea that God never runs out. So, so here's what I'm doing. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm walking through these, these four verses. I'm just going to explain what they mean, and then we're going to get to think about them and, and, and talk about them some more. But he's basically saying God, God is rich in the. He's rich. He's, his depth of riches is endless. He he never runs out. There's no limit to what he chooses to give us. He has deep pockets. Okay. Then he then he talks about the depth of his wisdom. It's wisdom to choose the best ends and the best means to the to reach those ends. I like that definition. That was Michael DeFazio's. I like that. It's meaning he has, he has perfect discernment. He sees all options. 
and, and he knows, looking at all these options, he knows the right thing to do in response to that. He has perfect wisdom. He, the depth of wisdom is amazing. Then he talks about his depth of knowledge. The knowledge, um, he possesses relevant information and proper relationship to that information, from that information to the truth. It's perfect. So he says, oh, the depth of, of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And he, asks, and he says this statement, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This idea of his judgments is connected to his wisdom and his knowledge. There's a connection there. So in other words, he's saying his wisdom and knowledge is, is it basically is his judgments are un, unsearchable. They, 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 you, can't, you can't find the end of them. You can't. They're unbelievable. And then he says, um, how inscrutable his ways. And, and his ways, I think, is connected to his riches. The, his richness in the way he is kind towards us and the way he blesses us. So this word inscrutable is kind of a weird word. It, it literally just means impossible to comprehend, unknowable unless revealed. So it reminds me of Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. Um, I love this, these verses in Isaiah. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking in Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, high, um, for, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then he explains something that takes place in nature. So, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return um, there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, be, that, be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He's describing... The way in God, the way God works, He drops rain from the sky that lands, that waters the earth, that produces grain, that turns to bread, that feeds you and I. And in the same way, His word never returns void. His word always has it serves its purpose. Um, and so He's just describing that God's ways are far above our ways. Then He asks these two questions. So He start with He starts with these two statements. Then he asks these two questions, 34 and 35. Here's the first one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? This question is related to a similar idea that he's already described. The answer to this question is an assumed no one. Paul is using a rhetorical device of asking this question in order to make a powerful statement. So he says, no one knows the mind of the Lord. No one can give him counsel. Job 38 through 42 would be a great reference for this, if you know the story of Job and when God speaks in the end. I'll read a verse later from, from that section. But so, so Paul's fleshing out this idea that his wisdom and his knowledge and his judgments are unsearchable. Um, no one knows the mind of the Lord. No one can counsel him to do anything. And then he says, um, 
who can, who can give a gift to him that he might be repaid? In other words, no one can give a gift to God. That um, No one would be able to do something to God that God would then owe them and have to pay them back. That's kind of the idea. So this is Paul fleshing out the idea that God is rich in kindness and blessing and His ways of showering His people are unknowable and less revealed. And then he, then he ends with two statements again. Okay? He says, to Him and through Him, sorry, He says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. He's saying that all things from and through are, are from, through, and to God. In other words, God is the source of all things, God is the means to all things, and God is the goal of all things. He is the source, He is the means, and He is the goal of all things. And He says, to this God, to which all these things are, are from and through and to, He says, He deserves all the glory all the time. So that's what Paul's saying in these verses. Now, it's one thing to examine what he's saying. It's another thing to let it like resonate in, in you. So I want to talk about um, some attributes of God that are described here. So, so God has attributes. That's a concept that is worth spending a lot of time on. We're not actually going to talk a whole lot about all the attributes of God or exactly what an attribute is, but suffice it to say that when God acts, then we know what things are. For instance, the Bible says that God is love. Love is an attribute of God. And I talked a little bit about this maybe last week, but love isn't something that God chooses to do. He doesn't wake up one day and say, you know what, Zach, you've been driving me nuts, but I'm going to choose to love him anyway today. That's not, how, that's not how it works. That's how we do it. Because we are finite beings. We are limited beings. We, we reach an end. Our patience runs out. Things like that. And so we have to go, okay, i got to do this. I need to do this. God doesn't, that's not how it works. When God acts, we go, oh, that's what love is. So God doesn't, doesn't aspire to do things, to do these attributes he acts, and then we go, that's what faithfulness is. That's what kindness is. That's what patience is. That's what all knowledge is. So, in these verses, Paul is highlighting things like God's independence. God is independent. You and I are dependent. You and I haven't been able to sit here without taking... I don't know, maybe 40, 50, upwards to 100 breaths that have kept us alive. Every breath that you've taken just since, just, uh, since I started talking about attributes has been something that God has given, something that you are dependent upon Him for. God has nothing like that. He's not dependent on anything. There is, there is nothing that, that He is dependent on. We are dependent. He is not. God is self-existent. He's always existed. We are finite beings. We, we have a beginning and an end. We can't fathom no beginning and 
no end. Those are even those are time-related words. We don't even know how to talk about before time and after time, or always and forever. We don't even understand those concepts because we're such time-created um, beings. God is self-existent. He has always been, and He always will be. He exists in Himself. Nothing else keeps Him going. He is self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient. And He is all-knowing. He knows all things. He is all-wise. He, he knows how to make the right call every single time. So, so these two things come from, I think, what Paul's describing. That God asks no one for, for guidance. He asks no one for guidance. Isaiah 40, 13 and 14. Um, Paul, or Isaiah says these words, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or, who, or what man shows him his counsel? This is related to what I think Paul, where Paul gets this. Verse 14, Whom did he consult and, whom, uh, and who made him understand? He's talking about the Spirit of the Lord. Who taught him the path of justice? Who, who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? The answer to all those is, again, no one. God asks no one for guidance. Um, you and I need guidance constantly, especially this time in your life. Um, this is the time in your life when, if you haven't yet, and if you aren't, you need to be seeking guidance. You need to be seeking, this is what we talk about, the connection to older believers. You need to be seeking people who are in the phase ahead of you, or stage ahead of you, or two or three stages ahead of you, just to seek guidance, just to find out, okay, so like, how do I think about this? And what should I focus on? And what, what should I do? What did you do? God needs no guidance from any of us. No guidance from anyone. Here's the second thing. God owes no one for their assistance. God owes no one anything. Listen to Job 40 verse 11. Who was, this is God speaking, who has first given to me that I should repay him? In other words, God's saying, name the person who first gave me something and then I should owe him something back. Because then he says, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. This, I think about this when I think about my kids. Early on, um, I did this with them. Because I heard of another father doing it before I had kids, and I, and I wanted to try it out for myself. So whenever we would, I would get them something like candy or um, chicken nuggets or, or french fries or something like that, I would, I would you know, get them for them, sit it down, and when I could remember, you know, I was kind of planning ahead, I would think through this. And I would first say, okay, here you go. And they'd get, their eyes would get all excited, right, and they'd want to dive right in. I'm like, whoa, 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 let, let, me, let me have one first before you have one and it's amazing how they go from thank you so much to these are mine you know um, it, it's it's just it's fascinating and so I remember doing this with Trace it's, it's always Trace but I remember saying <laughs> I remember saying to him he wouldn't give me a chicken nugget you know because he had like I don't know six and he didn't want to give up one of them or something and I remember saying to him dude I can bury you in chicken nuggets. 
I could dig a hole so big and buy so many chicken nuggets and put you in the hole and then fill a, a truck, dump truck full of chicken nuggets, dump it on you and bury you in chicken nuggets, you know. Um, let me have one. And I think about that a lot because, I mean, that's me. That's me in a lot of ways. What could I give God that He hasn't already given me? What could you give Him? Um, what does God owe you is kind of the conclusion. See, this, this, we struggle with this because in America we are obsessed strongly and deeply um, obsessed with this idea of my rights. It's a really, really big deal. My rights. I was just talking to um, my brother back there about the difference between he, him growing up in Kenya and us growing up here. We have such an independent way of thinking about life and it's, it's I'm going to do my thing, good luck with your thing and and, and their way of living is, is different. It's, it's interdependent. They, they do what's best for the whole, the family, the, the siblings. And I said, man, we, we, just, we don't talk like that. We, we are obsessed with my rights and, and me getting what I'm entitled to. But there's a cost that comes with that, I think. I think it trains us to think about life in certain ways. So let me ask you questions, a few questions. Have you ever felt like God has let you down? Have you ever felt like God hasn't given you what you need? Have you ever felt like you've deserved better? Have you ever had an, inc- an inclination that you would have done things different or maybe um, better than God has done them? And I think if you have, then you're human. Um, by the way, because it's natural for us to question, like, why, God, and, and how come? And it's, and it's kind of like, um, I don't know if I've, I've probably shared this story again with Trace, but it, I remember sitting at dinner with him, and I remember asking him, uh, and actually I didn't ask him, he just, he just, like always, he just told me what he wanted, which was... Um, he didn't, want, he didn't want to eat what my wife had provided for dinner, made for dinner. He wanted candy for dinner. He was like three and a half, four. I want candy, Dad. I don't want this. I want candy. And I said, no, I'm not giving you candy for dinner. And he said, why not? I said, because I love you. I'm not giving you candy. Because I didn't feel like explaining to him why candy is bad for your body and, you know, getting into the whole health side of it. Because he's four. He's not going to understand it. I just said, no, I'm not giving you. I love you too much, I'm not giving He said, well then stop loving me and give me some candy. <laughs> Literally what he said. It popped up on my fa- Facebook feed um, a little while ago. But I, but I remember thinking like, that's such a brilliant response because it's like, yeah, I don't understand and so I don't care. Just give me what I want. Um, all of us do this. And what what, what Paul is busting out into song about, after getting done spending time describing God's way of bringing in both Jew and Gentile into the kingdom of God and and transforming them into the church, he's busting out into song just how unknowable God's ways are and unsearchable they are and like he's rich 
and, and He doesn't owe us anything, and we deserve, uh, uh, he, he deserves everything from us. And so this phrase, um, fear of the Lord, is something I've been thinking about a lot um, over the last several months. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of knowledge, the, the, the scriptures say. And the, I think we're afraid of this word fear, but I think it's, it's an interesting word. It's used in a very positive sense in the Old Testament, especially in Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Job. Um, but I've come to understand this, this fear as a relational term. Because this kind of fear is a word that is full of humility. And, and, and the authors of the Bible are saying that fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the beginning. It's the entry point into a relationship with God because you can't come into the presence of an all-knowing, all-wise, self-existent, um, self-sufficient, independent God and demand something and think you have, um, that you deserve to be in His presence. That's, if, if that's the case, then you've just manufactured a, a version of God that really is more your version than the actual version than the actual God. And any, any God that we make up, really it's us. So if, if, when we have a version of God that isn't what He reveals, then we are God to ourselves. Does that make sense? But this God is different. This God says, no, yeah, I am... There is a fear that is, would be normal for you to have um, before you approach me because it's full of humility. You have to approach God with humility. You can't have a relationship with this God without humbling yourself before Him. So, um, so this word doxology, it's kind of an interesting word. Um, it's actually a, if you type in doxology, right away the word lyrics come up because it's been it's kind of turned into this little verse or, or hymn of praise. Um, and, and so I was reading about the, the history of this, this doxology, this song that we've seen. You've probably heard it. We're going to sing it here in a second. But the word, th this song was written by a guy named Thomas Ken. He was an Anglican bishop in the late 1600s. He wrote this in 1674. And he wrote it, and he was published in this book. And here's the name of the book. It's a book called a Manual for Prayers for the Use of the Scholars of Winchester College. It's a mouthful. But he wrote it for the seminary students at this college for the purpose of he wanted to give them hymns and prayers to pray in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening so that they wouldn't just get filled with this and, 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 and then only think about, okay, yeah, we, and then this, but that they would have this, that they would have, they wouldn't just get filled with theology all day long and, okay, yeah, we need to go live it out, but that they would stop. He wanted to put prayers and hymns in their, in their life that they could just stop and praise God for, connect their heart to, to Him, to, so here's the words, it's praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So he wrote these words purposely to engage our heart 
so that we don't just know the right things about Him, or don't just live rightly before Him, live moral lives, but that our affections would be stirred and that our love for Him would be ignited. So, I've asked a couple. Is it just two of you? Okay. I've asked two of these peoples to come and to, um, to lead us in this doxology. And then I will get up and close us out for this half. We are turning a corner into Romans chapter 12, which um, I'm excited about. We're going to spend four weeks in 12, okay? We spent two weeks in three chapters, and now we're going to spend four weeks in one chapter um, because there's a lot here, and there's a lot worth spending time on. So if you were here several weeks ago, Drew kind of summarized the book of Romans, and in which basically you could say that, that Romans is a defense, God, it's Paul's defense of God's righteousness. He is defending God's righteousness, and in the first few chapters, he's defending God's righteousness and judging a sinful world. In, in, in the end of three and all of four, he's, just, he's defending God's righteousness and saving um, people through Jesus. In chapters five through eight, it's God's righteousness and giving new life in the Spirit. In 9 through 11, it's God's righteousness and Israel's unbelief. And then here in 12 through 16, for, so for the rest of our time this semester, we'll be in these, these, this, this section of God's righteousness in the transformed community of Christ, the body of Christ. And so things are going to go, we're going to move from, actually we're going to spend a little doxology, but we're moving into orthopraxy, we're moving into this how do we live out the implications of the gospel? How do we live in light of what Christ has done, and um, especially in the context of the church? So I need someone to read 12 verse 1. Okay, go ahead. You got it? What version do you have? Both ESV and CSV. Woo! Uh, ESV is great. You're prepared. ESV is great. ESV? Yeah. Okay. You got them both up? Well, sideways you can have both versions. Very cool. What app is that? Bible app. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. That's, that's good. I, what is this app that you, des- you describe? Okay, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. 12.1, just the first verse. Okay, so Paul starts in with this word appeal, um, also means to urge, maybe some of your translations, or to implore, and he's saying, he, and he uses this word intentionally, brothers. Now, we, we can skip over that word, but Paul's use of that word is, is more of a heartfelt, listen, your family, and so that sets a tone for what's coming. Because uh, he's going to have a family talk about life in the family. So he, he goes on, and Paul has already established this way of, uh, this pattern of how do we live out the gospel. In, the, in these two words, he, he, he describes, and Drew, I remember teaching on this back in Romans 
5, I believe it was, but it's calculate and consecrate. So he says, he's about to say, or he says in, these, in this verse, in view, calculate, in other words, in view of, of who God is, his attributes, and what he's done, his mercy, he says, consecrate. He says, offer the parts of your body as instruments for holiness instead of sin. That's essentially what's being said here. He says, so he's talking about the mercies of God, this, that because of who God is and everything that he's done for us, everything that he gives us is all mercy. Like, again, he doesn't owe us anything. So everything that's given is given in mercy. And that's why humble praise is a natural next step. But what Paul is appealing to is that we offer our bodies. This is also something I think we can kind of run past and, and, and skip over and not see the implications of this. The fact that his first move in starting to deal with um, life in the body of Christ or, or even dealing with our sin is, is talking about our body. And that should tell you a lot about where he understands sin takes place. Um, I would argue it's not sin doesn't thrive in your motives, per se. It doesn't, it doesn't happen in your thoughts, per se, or your desires, but what you act on. Sin happens when we use parts of our bodies in ways that go against God's design. And that, that's the implications of, of what he's Describing, he says, offer your bodies. He says, present your, your eyes and your hands and your feet and your mouth and pre- present all of your body to God as a living sacrifice to deny the desires of the flesh and to become, like we learned in chapter 8, spiritually minded people. So in a word, you could sum up this as just obedience. Paul says, obey. Um, he says we are to be living sacrifices. Think about this idea of a living sacrifice. We know what a sacrifice is from the Old Testament. But most of them were dead. All of them were dead when they were being sacrificed. What about a living sacrifice? Well, living sacrifices can crawl off the altar. And, and, and I think there's a picture there that I think is being described. It's, it described. It's, it's a picture of Jesus willingly going to the cross and he calling us to follow in his steps. So, um, it's because of the mercy of God in Christ that we are to be this living sacrifice, to offer our bodies to him. And he says, it's obedience. And there's no substitute for obedience. And and then he describes it as worship. So he's saying, obedience is worship. Last week I talked about how God the Father gives us a new identity in Christ, and out of that identity, uh, we, we obey. We, we recognize we have a good Father who we trust and who is good to us, and so we naturally want to do the things He wants to do. Out of our identity in Him, we obey. And that obedience, Paul's saying, is, is worship. It's bringing praise to the Father. So, um, obeying God with your body, and in, in other words, your morality is an act of worship to God. All of it done in light of the mercy of God, in light of this new life in the Spirit. So, um, and then he, verse 2, 
Read verse 2. He says a new statement. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he says, do not be conformed to the world, to this world. He says, do not be like them. Do not allow their way of thinking and acting, um, what they do with their bodies, to mold and, and shape the way you think and the way you act and what you do with your body. And the word, the, uh, the world that's, that's used there is literally the, this age. That's kind of the idea. But it's the values and the beliefs of this era, this era, this, uh, this time in human history. And I don't think Paul is just describing first century. So I don't think he's saying, um, don't act like these people, and it's just the first century world that's really bad, but the rest of the time, and it'll be fine. I think this is a universal truth that's being described here, that all, all of human history, all of the eras, all of the ages are the same, because every period of time and every culture is operating from a life in the flesh, not a life of the Spirit. That's, that's, um, that's ultimately you, what Paul's been describing in chapter 8 especially is you can't have life in the Spirit without Christ. That's, that's not possible. So for the natural way in which the world operates is of the flesh, is, is worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom. Um, it's not wisdom that comes from Him or a revelation from Him, but it's wisdom that's born from natural. Jesus says you must be born again, born from above. Um, your, your natural flesh will try and do things according to its own desires, from its own source of wisdom. But spirit birth self operates from a new way of living. And he says, be transformed. This, this word, transform, you've heard of it. It's literally metamorpho, um, where we get the word metamorphosis. It's to have one's inward nature and thus outward nature changed. And, and you've probably guessed that there's a, there's a picture, there's a creature that's often linked with this word. What is it? Butterfly. A butterfly. A butterfly. So it's this idea of going through this change and becoming something new. Um, and this change should be seen. I mean, any real change that happens inwardly affects the outward life. But how? And he says, by the renewal of the mind. Um, notice he doesn't say, um, don't be like the world. In fact, just escape from the world in order to, to not be like the world. No, he says, he says, resist being like the world by renewing your mind. He says, you become new and different by thinking new and different. There's, there's, there's something about the way we think. There's something about our mind that it plays a very crucial role in our sanctification, in us becoming more like Christ. The word repentance literally is, means change of mind. Metanoia, change of mind. Um, and so, this is a big deal for God. That, that, that right thinking leads to right living. You become new and different by thinking new and different. 
And so for Paul, this is describing a way of thinking, an attitude, a mindset. Paul is describing conscious decisions to think one way and not another, to, to adopt a certain viewpoint or perspective. So the question is, um, how? How do we do this? How do we, how do we, how are we transformed? How do we renew our minds? Is this something we should let God do? Um, is renew our minds. And uh, our, our leaders are reading through a book right now called The Good News for Anxious Christians. And um, this, this last week, chapter 3, I got on a little bit of a hobby horse. I apologize for some of you who are going to hear this again. Um, but I think this is really profound. The author points out when we say phrases like, just let God work in your life. Let God change you. Let God, you know, this idea of letting God do something really gives us a way too much power. Then It assumes that we have way more power than we, than we really do. There's a false idea that says God can't work in your life unless you let Him. But that's not really how it works. The, 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 the correct way of, of thinking is God is at work in your life whether you let Him or not. And maybe whether you know it or not. You are not powerful enough to stop God from doing anything. So there isn't a you letting God do something. Or me letting God do something. It is, He is at work. The, the question is, uh, are we aware of it? Do we see it? So another false idea is, if I don't let God work, He won't work. Somehow, I have to do things but not do them in my own strength. This is the false idea. I have, to, I have to do things and not do them in my own strength, but but through God's strength, and then I'm letting Him do them. And it's confusing. It doesn't make any sense. The right idea is that God tells you to do things, and then it's up to you to do them. It's called obedience. When you do them, God's not doing them. You are. And if And if God wanted to do them, He would. Instead, He asks you to do it and expects you to do it. Also, when you do it, you reap the, the blessing that God intended you to have when you do what He wants you to do. That's kind of how this works. So we'll talk about here in a second, specifically, the, this: how do we renew our minds? What kinds of things do we think about? But I, I just want to say, like this is something that God is doing. And He is going to ask you to do things. And it's a matter of obedience. It's not a matter of passive, passively letting Him do something. So, and He says, that by testing, by, so we do this, by renewing of the mind, um, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and, and acceptable and perfect. So all of us, uh, I meet with students, um, well, regularly, obviously, and this is a this is a big question. And I remember having this question. I remember I remember walking around the campus uh, where I was at and asking this question, being frustrated at my lack of maturity, and being frustrated that I wasn't where I felt like I should be. Anybody been there? Like you, you know the things you should do, but you don't find yourself doing those things. And you've, you're tired of apologizing to God about it, and maybe even almost frustrated 
um, with God because of it. And so there's, all of us want this maturity. All of us want wisdom. Nobody in here would say, no, I don't want to be mature or wise. <laughs> I want to be immature and, and foolish. That's what I want. No, nobody would say that. All of us want it. The problem is, none of us like the process that we have to go through to get it. And what Paul's describing here is a process. So I love this word, discernment. It has become a word that I have grown to truly appreciate in my life. That God gives you an ability to discern. That when, that when your, your mind is renewed to His truth, when it thinks the way God wants you to think, um, then you, you, you have an ability to, to discern God's will, to discern what's good and what's bad. So, Paul's describing this transformation talking, happening, this, this process that involves mindsets changing and attitudes changing. And um, those things don't change overnight. Those things don't change just by us wanting them to change. They, there's a process involved. It happens as you align yourself to God's truth. It happens in kind of in the mud. It happens as you are in the in difficult circumstances and you walk through those circumstances and you look back and you learn from those circumstances and it equips you better as you see things God's see things that God wants you to see it helps you to make better decisions in the future so discerning God's will is a big deal um, for for you and and I say that specifically for your age like I want to know God's will for my life. That's a big question. It's, it's in our Q&A time. It's, it's always one that's asked in some way, shape, or form. Um, but it's not something you have to find. Um, it's not you finding God's will. Like wisdom, discernment is, is not a destination to arrive at, but a path. So wisdom is not a destination. Discernment is not a destination. It's a path. Um, the more you're on it, the more you'll understand it. You can be wise. Think about this. Um, the reason wisdom isn't a destination, or wisdom and discernment aren't destinations, is because think about Solomon's life. Solomon was considered to be the wisest man who ever lived, and yet at the end of his life he was a fool. Like the way the Bible describes fool, Solomon was a fool. Solomon was wise and became a fool. Why? Because he got off the path. In the Bible, it, it uses this language, do not veer to the right or to the left. Or to the left. Um, I guess in your way it would be to the right or to the left. Ah, I did it right the first time. Um, so the, because for God, it's stay on the path. Don't veer off to the right or to the left. Stay on the path. And that's wisdom. Wisdom and discernment are a path. Wisdom is not like a PhD. A PhD is something you will have with you, if you get one, will have with you whenever, wherever you go, for as long as you live. And when you're 90 years old, you can always have a PhD, because it's something you have. You acquired the knowledge to get the degree. But wisdom isn't that way. 
It's something you grow in as long as you fear God and stay on the path. And um, wisdom is something that is gained as you learn to discern good things and bad things. It's, it's not a... We all kind of want this, this God waving a wand over us and then, boink, you're wise, you know. But that's not how it works. It works by fearing the Lord and discerning good things for you that God wants and bad things that God doesn't want you to have. It's discerning good and bad in your life. And that takes time. It requires learning from experiences and from decisions that you make, right or wrong. Most of us, we don't like the growing in wisdom because we want to be wise so that we don't make any mistakes. Because mistakes hurt and, and they cost us. And they're hard. And we don't want those things. And so therefore we just want wisdom so that we don't have to make mistakes. And what God is oftentimes doing is saying, no, 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 there's so much to be learned in that mistake. Why would I take that from you? Why would I, why would I hold you back from something that's going to help you so much? So, He doesn't tell you what to do. He, he, he walks with you through life and gives you wisdom the more you go, the more you stay on the path. So, um, so how do we renew our mind, practically speaking? A couple things I want to point out about Romans. When we started this, Drew and I were talking about Romans. I wanted to have like a little tagline for Romans. And the tagline I wanted was the renewal of the mind. Because um, we, we, at the beginning of the year we met with Michael DeFazio, a guy who he was our teacher on our winter retreat. And he teaches Romans. And he said something that I, I still haven't forgotten. He said, you know, in some people kind of consider Romans to be therapy. Therapy for the mind. Because of Paul's use for the word mind. And so, I, I didn't, I'd never really thought of that. And so I went back and I started looking back at um, the word mind, how it's used. So in one, chapter 1, verse 28, he talks about a corrupt mind. We talked about that. In chapter 7, verse 23... Um, it's talked about that there's a war raging in our minds, against our minds. In chapter 8, verse 6, it talks about minds focused on the flesh is death, but minds focused on the Spirit is what? Life and peace. And then here in 12.2, a mind that is, uh, uh, transformation happens by renewing your mind to God's truth. So you see, like at the beginning, you have... Uh, corrupt mind, and by chapter 12, you have a mind that's being renewed and restored. And, and what's the difference? The gospel is in the middle. And so the gospel is something that I believe um, not only shows us who we are, what shows us what God's done and who, uh, you know, who He is, but who we are and how we should live, but it's, it becomes something very practical for our everyday life. Something that we talk about with our leaders that we believe that a leader in our ministry needs to be someone who has processed the gospel well. So, in other words, when they think about their past, they are able to process like how, how the gospel has shaped their past and how, what, 
how, how, shape them how they view their past. So if they went through something terrible early on in life, that they're able to talk about it in a way that shows that they understand what Jesus has done for them in their past. And then in their present, to recognize how the gospel has shaped, is shaping their opportunities. How they are, whether they have classmates or roommates or career opportunities, whoever, that they're thinking about how the gospel shapes the decisions they make today and who they talk to and why and what their motivations are and what they're involved in. And then how the gospel shapes their future. How the gospel implications of what Jesus has done should shape like the kind of life they want to lead in the future. And so we talk about like a healthy leader has processed the gospel well. And, and, and Romans is giving us a, a picture of how the gospel is therapy for us. And the reason I latched onto that idea is because, for a lot of reasons, but we, so we have a counselor on staff, her name is Sharon, and I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but I bet right now half of her clients are college students or more. Um, because there is a lot going on in your minds. A lot of stuff that you guys are wrestling with. And if, and if there's any time in your life when you need the gospel to begin to shape the way you think and reorient and take you from a mind that's confused or believes lies or corrupt or whatever to a mind that's being renewed in the truth and being transformed... It's, it's in college, and it's the gospel is the answer. So this last point is let your self-talk be saturated in the gospel. Let your self-talk, the things you tell yourself, be saturated in the gospel. Let God's opinion of you define you. And let Christ's death determine God's opinion of you. You are a child of His by grace, and you are ambassadors on mission. That's, that's who God says you are in Christ. And so as you read God's Word, as you spend time, like what, what, what Drew was saying, as you grow in a habit, which is all it is, it's a, it's a habit, it's a discipline, um, and, and some of you are good at it now, and some of you are not. I was not good at it at your age. I was not good at this habit. It was very inconsistent. And um, by God's grace, and, and as I grew in wisdom, I learned how to be more disciplined in it. I learned how to incorporate this habit into my life because I, I recognized the value of this verse, that when I am in God's Word, it renews my mind, it, it aligns my mind to His truth because I can easily veer off and I need to be realigned to His truth to stay on His path. The Word of God will renew your mind like nothing else. Like nothing else. So, uh, you, were, you were probably given one of these. Anybody not have one of these? It's a prayer for a cleansed mind. Um, a gentleman, a good friend of mine, um, gave this to me about 15 years ago, this document. And I've been 
praying it periodically ever since. And so what I'd like to do is I'm going to read it. I'm going to read the first line and then the next stanza um, you guys are going to read and then I'm going to read and then you guys will read the next section, little, the next little stanza. So um, you guys will respond by reading, we'll read and respond um, together. But I, 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 I want you to have this. I want you to take this home, and I actually want you to put this somewhere where you can see it. Because whether you know it or not, this thing is full of Scripture. And I think it can be really helpful for you to pray um, on a regular basis. But I will start. I'll read the first line. You read the next. O Lord, O Lord, I come humbly before you and seek your help to cleanse my mind. Help me examine every thought by the light of God and reject whatever is not of you. Enable me to root out and resist every evil thought or lie of the enemy. Teach me, O Lord, to take back the holy ground in my mind that I have given away in days gone by. I pray that no thoughts will issue forth from my sin nature, but if it does, it will be exposed and disposed of by God's light immediately. I choose by an act of my will to lay aside my old self and put on the new self, which has been created in the likeness of God's righteousness. I choose not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of my mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep away, uh, keep me away from my old pattern of thinking, but instead think rightly of you, God. Keep me in check from accepting any teaching which would separate me from your truth and the body of Christ. Because of Christ's sacrificial death and life-giving resurrection, I ask these things in His name. Amen. That is all. Um, any other announcements? Any last-minute things? Ryan? Drew, Monica. Okay. Thank you guys for being here. Glad you're here. Stick around, hang out. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you.